This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Last episode, we saw Jesus gather his band of brothers. This week, we see the next natural step. The bros party with a lot of wine. It's as if at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus wants to say, Your Savior has arrived. Let the celebration begin. Also, start bracing for harrowing defeat. Those are the two messages of the wedding feast at Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine. And we will discover throughout Jesus's story, and unfortunately, throughout our own, that this kind of celebration and pain often go hand in hand. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me read today's gospel and kind of go over it. If the moment when Jesus gathers his band of brothers is sort of the soft launch of his mission, this is the moment Jesus goes public with what he's offering. So here's the story, the Gospel of John. On the third day, there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the marriage with his disciples. When the wine failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, O woman, what has this to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now six stone jars were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out, and take it to the steward of the feast. So they took it. When the steward of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That is the story of the beginning of Jesus Christ's public ministry, the big reveal. This is his first public miracle, We don't know if he did any miracles before that. Probably not, because he tends to do miracles for our sake, not for his own. But this is the first public one. And this is a special beginning because it gives a shape to his whole life. Often stories begin with an incident that defines the whole story. So we're in America. We have the story of George Washington. uh, And that story starts, at least in legend, with him chopping down a cherry tree and admitting, yes, it was I who chopped down that cherry tree. Well, this is a way of setting the stage, and this is going to be an honorable man who is who has great integrity. Well, the Revolutionary War in America starts with us throwing tea into the harbor to protest attacks, and that becomes kind of paradigmatic of the story that follows. In France, they didn't destroy tea, but they destroyed aristocrats, and that showed a very different trajectory to their revolution. But I'm trying to think of the right way to talk about things that begin your new life in order to compare them to Jesus at Cana. 
It's a bit like in the Marines, maybe, where you start your career with boot camp, where you learn obedience and kind of fraternity and bravery uh, in an intense way. But the best analogy I can find to a ceremonial kickoff to a new stage in life is probably the way your family and friends gather around and you pledge yourself to your new spouse in front of them at a wedding, and then you go off and celebrate. I can tell you the greatest events I've ever been at were wedding celebrations. The beer and wine are flowing, the music starts, the people are dancing without embarrassment, even when their dancing should cause some embarrassment. Uh, they even do the chicken dance, which I think is has a rightful place in the wedding ceremony. Uh, I think weddings go through the whole drama. You see it there in the speeches. There's the stories of the person's past, and there's this hope for the people's future. Um, there's tears, and there's cheers, and there's singing, and there's dancing. Well, that's how we start our lives together, with a review of our past, a break from our family, and then this kind of grand hope of what's to come. And we celebrate the hope even before the good thing has happened. And this is exactly how Jesus is starting his public ministry, isn't it? At a wedding. And he hits all those steps. Okay, so it wasn't his wedding, but it was a wedding that he was invited to with his mother, who seems to have a role at the wedding of some kind. And it's a epic, awesome wedding, because that's how kind of weddings in the ancient world, and particularly in the Jewish ancient world, were. It was a days-long affair. Lots going on, people coming and going, kids running around, the wine as we see flowing. And if it were about Jesus, if it were his wedding, you'd expect to see kind of what we've already covered in the extraordinary story, the stories of his past and whatnot. And you'd expect a kind of best man speech. Well, we're going to get that in the next chapter of John, which we'll talk about in the future, where John says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the groom, the best man who stands and listens to him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been complete. He must increase and I must decrease. So this is John who will proclaim himself the best man of this wedding. But like I say, it's not Jesus's wedding. All the same, his history is there kind of hovering in the background. The strange things Simeon and Anna said about him the time he got lost and was found in the temple. And that's all hanging there when Jesus says to his mother, did you not know that I would be about my father's business at the temple before? And when he says now, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Well, that's the King James Version. Jesus saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? And then there's a Douay Reims Version that says, woman, what is that to me and to thee? My hour has not yet come. So whatever it is, it always sounds like he's harshly speaking to his mother, and he's always talking about his hour. What is this hour? What's well, the hour that Jesus will die on the cross? It's the crescendo of the whole gospel. The Cana story is from the Gospel of John, and later in the Gospel of John, on the threshold of his death, he'll say, Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He will dialogue with his father about the hour, now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. He'll make it clear in the end that he is going to the hour of his death in obedience to his father. So I think it's fascinating 
that in this gospel, he makes it clear that at the beginning, he headed toward that hour in obedience to his mother. Whatever connection she had with the family that's putting on the wedding, she says they have no wine. And when he calls her woman, he's naming her as the new Eve. So he'll say the same thing at the crucifixion. He'll call her woman. But here he says, how does your concern affect me? My hour has not yet come. He's telling her a lot with those words. So he's telling her that doing a miracle in public will bring that hour, the hour of trial, the hour of decision, the hour of fulfillment, barreling down on top of him. It'll provoke the religious figures of his time by declaring him divine, and it'll provoke the civil authorities of his time by declaring himself a king. It'll necessitate that he start telling the world who he is, and the world, once they hear who he is, will want to kill him. Mary's answer is prototypically Marian. She turns to the servers and says, do whatever he tells you. This nicely tells Jesus that she's not taking his tacit no as a final answer. But she's also not dictating the way things will happen. He's the boss. She's just arranging things such that the boss will more likely to alleviate the problem that she has noticed and brought to his attention. Well, she does the same thing in intercession with our lives. But I find it fascinating to compare this uh, to a parable Jesus tells later on about a man who had sons who he asked to work in the vineyard. One son says yes, but doesn't do it. The other son says no, but does go work in the vineyard. So who did the will of the father is the question. Well, it's the one who said no, but did it anyway. Well, Jesus is that guy at Cana. Uh, He says, seems to say no to his mother, but then he tells his servants what to do. And what he tells them to do is to fill six stone water jars and bring them to him. They do, and he turns them into wine, marking the beginning of his march to the cross. But the stone water jars that are used here are important. These are for ceremonial washing. They're the kind of water that was used to wash the feet of the disciples at the Last Supper. And um, the Last Supper is very much a presence in this reading. He turns water into wine at Cana. At the Last Supper, he turns wine into his blood. Here he begins his countdown to the hour. At the Last Supper, he announces that the hour has arrived for him to die for our sins. So the gospel ends by saying, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And that's quite a statement. This is the big reveal, clearly. It's also kind of a remarkable sign that he, uh, that he does here. So he turned six stone jars of 20 to 30 gallons of water, each into wine. That's a lot of wine. That's 120 to 180 gallons worth, if my math is right. And that's somewhere between 600 and 900 standard bottles of wine. I don't know how big the wedding party was, but that's a lot of wine. And I'll talk about the quantity of wine, but... Let's just go through the story again, but focus on each of the elements, because each one is important in this particular story. So first, let's start with the wedding. This is taking place at a wedding. This puts the lie, for starters, to lots of old mistakes that people make about Jesus. There have always been worries that marital intimacy is something that God tolerates but doesn't really like. 
But the Bible does not say that. In fact, the Bible says exactly the opposite of that. The Bible begins with Adam and Eve made for each other, and it begins with the first commandment of God to them, which is be fruitful and multiply. When they sin, that taints their whole family down to you and me, because we are all multiples of them. But getting our marriages and our multiplying right becomes God's concern throughout salvation history. He promises Abraham that if he follows him, his descendants will be as the stars. There's this whole family drama of Esau and Jacob and Joseph and all those old stories. Then he gives Moses his Ten Commandments, warning that the sins of the parents would redound to the third generation and sometimes the fourth, which scientists now see is very accurate. Uh, The study of epigenetics shows that trauma is passed on precisely down to the third and sometimes the fourth generation. In the Ten Commandments, he also says that if you honor your father and mother, your whole life will be better. And we've discovered that that's true statistically also. So God makes a covenant with David that the fruit of his loins will inherit an eternal throne. God never turns up his nose at sex. He created it. He created us to seek it as something that's bonding, something that brings babies, yes, but also absolutely as something that is intensely pleasurable. He also not only blessed the marital union, but saw it as central to his plans. In fact, we will see again and again, he sees the wedding as a metaphor for heaven, and he sees it even as a metaphor for our soul uniting with his. So the fact that Jesus begins at a wedding is significant. So that's the wedding. Let's turn to the wine. Here we have Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, celebrating the commencement of a new sexual union. Yeah, it's more than that, but it is certainly also that. And the Jewish ceremony acknowledged that with kind of this formal procession of the groom to the bedchamber. So they they saw that that was what was going on here in the foreground, not just in the background. But what does he do to celebrate this? He makes a ton of wine. So God isn't approved about sex, and he's also not approved about wine. They're out of wine, which is to say that they're out of joy, out of connection, out of good spirits. They're like the church that we see often today, the church that's unenergetic, disinterested, apathetic, reduced to tired corporate buzzwords and endless meetings, often meetings about meetings, uh, instead of the always new, always ancient words of the gospel. So what does Jesus do to please his mother? He doesn't do anything very spectacular. He creates wine behind the scenes. It's like the multiplication of the loaves, which we'll see later. The servers are aware that a miracle has occurred. But as we see, the steward doesn't understand that a miracle has occurred. And those who receive it merely enjoy it, believing whatever they will. The wine he creates, however, transforms everything subtly but totally. The symbol couldn't be clearer. The ordinary water is turned to something utterly new, more exciting, by Jesus, and the party is made more lively and loving. But Jesus' miracle doesn't just make the church more alive, to use the metaphor. It brings all time to a crisis point. John ends the gospel by saying Jesus does this to reveal his glory so that the disciples will begin to believe in him and thus be ready for his passion and death. Well, it's worth talking about the miracle just a little longer. Because C.S. Lewis kind of calls this the paradigmatic miracle of Christ. And I'm going to do a longish quote from him, but I think that it's helpful. Quote, 
God creates the vine and teaches it to draw up water by its roots, and with the aid of the sun to turn that water into juice which will ferment and take on certain qualities. Thus, every year, from Noah's time till ours, God turns water into wine. That men fail to see. Either like the pagans they refer the process to some finite spirit, Bacchus or Dionysius, or else, like the moderns, they attribute real and ultimate causality to the chemical and other material phenomenon, which are all that our senses can discover in it. But when Christ at Cana makes water into wine, the mask is off. The miracle has only half its effect if it only convinces us that Christ is God. It will have its full effect whenever we see a vineyard or drink a glass of wine, we remember that here works he who sat at the wedding party at Cana. This is the kind of miracle that God does, the kind that helps us see how he works every day. So we'll see him multiply loaves, which of course he does every day because there's bread everywhere. We'll see him walk on water, which of course he does every day because he comes across distances from Palestine to Alaska to Australia to talk to us. We'll see him heal and cast out demons. It's all stuff we see in our own life in natural ways and occasionally, rarely, in miraculous ways. We'll talk more about this in the future, but remember, God is outside time and space and exists beneath and behind everything that it exists by his essence, presence, and power. God turns water into wine every day through secondary causes, and even when it's not a miracle, it's delightful and we should be grateful to him. But let's turn from the wine to Mary. Because once you realize that Jesus can easily transform water into wine, you start to realize that's just the beginning of what Jesus does. He can also transform your marriage, just like he transforms Mary and the laity, which we'll get to the laity next, but let's start with Mary. Mary is transformed into a heavenly advocate. It's significant that the great public revelation about who Jesus is starts with Mary. Just like she was the center of the nativity story, Mary is the center of this scene also when he begins his public ministry. She initiates his miracle with the four words, they have no wine. When his mother says, they have no wine, Jesus answers, woman, how does your concern affect me? My hour has not yet come. It sounded less harsh in the original culture than it does now, but its meaning is the same and it sounded slightly harsh even then. Jesus is not calling his mother by name, but calling her by a category, woman, much as Eve was called by God after she ate the apple. So he knows what she is asking him to do, a miracle that will start him on the road to his execution and will reverse what Eve did so long ago. In fact, Eve in her story eats a forbidden fruit. Jesus is going to make a fruit of the vine which is not forbidden. Eve's fruit will ruin everything. His fruit will save everything, especially on Holy Thursday. But he knows that this miracle will change everything about his own life, too. His identity will go from private to public, from Messiah-in-waiting to the Messiah, full stop, from safely ignored to targeted by the authorities. But in asking him, Mary changes, too. She becomes an advocate. The Second Vatican Council says, quote, Her constant intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. And it calls her, quote, advocate and mediatrix. His mother becomes the new Eve, the mother of all the living, and by the cross, she will become our mother also, directly. And she does what moms do. 
She notices what's missing in her children's lives, and she does what she can to get it there, in this case, bringing it to Jesus' attention to get it there. She's more than a mother, she's a queen mother. So in ancient Israel, the king's mother was also a queen. In the Old Testament, kings such as David often had more than one wife. That made it hard to pick a queen, so the mother naturally filled that role. Well, the queen mother gets great honor, receives great honor in the Old Testament. In 1 Kings, we hear about the mother of David's son. Quotes, When Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah, the king stood up to meet her, bowed down to her, and sat down on his throne. He had a throne brought for the king's mother, and she sat down at his right hand. End quote. Well, and the queen's voice demands respect in the Old Testament. The passage goes on. Bathsheba says, quote, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And he replies, make it, my mother. I will not refuse you. So Mary was this kind of mother. She's the eternal king's mother. She, when she learned that she was going to give birth to Jesus, she also learned that she was becoming a queen because the angel told her, you will conceive and give birth to a son. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Well, here Mary gets the same respect from her son and the same attention that the Old Testament queen mothers did. And just as with every queen mother, it is the king, not Mary, who is the center of attention, so is it here. We talked about the theodrama versus the ego drama that Hans Urs von Balthasar talks about, but which Bishop Robert Barron kind of picked up from him. We know our lives are not about us, Bishop Barron likes to say. We are part of a theodrama, the contours of which we can only begin to imagine. At first, it seems as though Mary is the exception to that rule. Sometimes it looks like, no, actually it is about her. Catholics see her everywhere. She's one of the most popular subjects of art ever. The Catechism tells us what the Catholic faith believes about Mary is based on what it believes about Christ, and what it teaches about Mary illumines in turn its faith in Christ. That's what happens in this story. Mary's there, doing something hugely significant, arranging the first miracle that will manifest her son's glory, but she stays in the background, giving the servants and the steward the starring roles of the story. And she does the same in our life. She isn't just a cosmic queen of heaven and earth. She's your personal queen looking into your life to see what is missing. St. John Paul II stresses this. He says, She is beside us because her glorious state enables her to follow us in our daily earthly journey. When our life is lacking wine, joy, energy, liveliness, she will be there to let him know that he should supply it. There's another group that's transformed in the story, and that's the servants. So, despite Jesus' apparent hesitation to do what he's being asked, Mary charges ahead and she turns to the servants and she says, what John Paul II calls the great maternal council, which Mary addresses to the church of every age, do whatever he tells you. So the servants are given the most menial tasks in the whole New Testament to accomplish. They have to fill these giant stone jars with water, a huge hassle in a time before faucets and hoses. I can't even imagine how they did it. But they fulfill their task fully, completely, filling the water jars to the brim. And with that, menial work is transformed into a model of the lay apostolate. So the servants do exactly what Jesus asked them. They fill the stone jars. At some point as they do this, Jesus changes the water into wine. Well, this is exactly what lay people do. 
We don't transform the world. We don't confect the sacraments. We do ordinary work that looks like drudgery, but by doing it for Jesus and by bringing it to him, we play an integral part of his transformation of the world, starting with our work. We're not the ones to transform people. We're the ones who make it such that Jesus can. We tidy the church. We schedule the servers and lectors. We invite our neighbors. We baptize our kids. We teach CCD. We get our own lives in order. We find our kids' shoes on the way out the door, get everyone to church. It isn't glorious work. It's hard work. But if we do it with Christ, it's a joy. And if we do it to the brim, we participate in his glory. Too often we don't do it. Mary says, do whatever he tells you, but instead we tell him what we want to do. Instead of spreading Christ's kingdom person to person among our neighbors, we'd rather broadcast our political opinions to online strangers. Instead of getting in touch with our family members and neighbors with the gospel, we would rather try out self-improvement methods to further our careers and leave our own families out of it. Instead of loving God by obeying his commandments, we would rather love God by adopting a favorite devotion or a spirituality that makes us feel noble and holy. Well, devotions are awesome if they lead to a changed life. I love them, in fact. But they have to go beyond that kind of consolation. The Holy Spirit is the consoler, and he gives various gifts, like the expression of wisdom, the expression of knowledge. These are teachers, scholars, bishops, priests. Some are given the gifts of healing or mighty deeds. These are wonder workers and spiritual heroes. If those people decide not to do those things, woe to them and woe to all of us. But most of us have the two basic gifts of the Holy Spirit mentioned in St. Paul. Faith and prophecy, which simply means telling the truth about God and believing in God. These are the ordinary jar-filling tasks of the laity. So we saw how Jesus transformed the servants who carried jugs. Look at how he transforms the steward. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely an inferior one, but you have kept the good wine until now. Well, this man's words are quoted by the greatest theologians in history. In this utterance, he becomes a prophet whose words reveal how the new covenant follows the old simply by doing his job with Christ. The same thing that happens to the servants who lug the heavy jars happens to the person who is willing to talk about the great gift he sees from God's hands. His actions are transformed. This is why people in our day need faith. I talked uh, in a previous episode about how the suicide rate is skyrocketing as people find their lives lonely and without meaning. We can all participate in Christ's work in this same way as the steward. Every time you bring your kids to Mass, every time you share a word about your faith, every time you say a prayer for someone, every time you offer up a sacrifice, God transforms your act into a thing of eternal beauty and consequence. No one's life is meaningless if he says one prayer. And if you do your daily work, your work becomes supernatural. Well, okay, let's press that one step further. Mary says, do whatever he tells you. What does he tell us to do? I'm a huge, huge believer in bare minimum Catholicism. I'm actually kind of weird about it. I uh, don't want to do extra things out of an excess of piety. I want to do the things that I'm asked for very well. I want to do those to the brim, but I don't want to do extra things. So do whatever he tells you. doesn't mean to turn your house into a seminary. doesn't mean you have to do a bunch of devotions. doesn't mean you have to do a daily holy hour. 
What it does mean is that you have to follow the church's teachings, the precepts of the church, the Ten Commandments, the church's teaching on the family. It means you have to go to Mass every Sunday and Holy Day, unite in Holy Communion, go to confession once a year, or when your sins make you go earlier, pray every day and serve the poor in the acts of mercy. That's all you have to do, and doing that will transform your life as much as lugging water jars transformed the servants. So we've come to the end now. I've gone through each of the groups that was there. Uh, but to close it out, I want to talk about how this kind of bare minimum Catholicism I'm talking about can turn into mystical experience Catholicism and how this story in particular shows that. The bridegroom in the story goes unnamed, perhaps because the gospel wants us to focus on Jesus who calls himself the bridegroom. And in this story, as well as the many parables about wedding feasts that we will come to, the bride is never mentioned. I think because we're supposed to be in the place of the bride, we being the church and we meaning each of us individually. You can see this all over the Old Testament. In fact, just in the divine office for morning prayer today, I noticed an example of it. But often it's um, this imagery like from Isaiah, you shall be called my delight and your land espoused. For the Lord delights in you and makes your land his spouse. We're all familiar with the concept that we should love all people, but no one suggests we should love all people like a groom loves a bride. Yet that's how God loves us. He loves us together as his bride, and he wants to unite with each of us as his bride. As a young man marries a virgin, your builder shall marry you, says Isaiah. And as a bridegroom rejoices in his bride, so shall your God rejoice in you. Song of Songs, I think, is very relevant here. Song of Songs is an Old Testament love poem about a man and a wife, but it also was taken by the Jewish tradition to be a story about God and his people. God talks about espousing his people. But after Christ, and with all of Jesus Christ's references to brides and bridegrooms, it's very much taken as a story about Jesus speaking to the church, and in fact, Jesus speaking to every one of our individual souls. Because each individual soul, as we relate to God, is feminine. We're receptive. We're the ones who are here to accept him into our lives. So I'll give you some quotes from the Song of Songs. And it's, I think, notable how often it mentions wine. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. And that's how it begins, actually. It says later, How beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much better is your love than wine, the fragrance of your oils than any spice. So that's Christ telling the bride and bridegroom that their love is better than the wine he's made. He will exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you, says the Song of Songs. Sometimes the Song of Songs has been taken to reference Mary, like where it says, Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army with banners? The Legion of Mary uses that as figurative language about the Blessed Mother. But the Song of Songs often sings about a heavenly wedding. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. The idea of the dark night of the soul that... Um, St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila, both written about, kind of comes from 
the Song of Songs, where there's this long passage that begins, I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. This idea that we love God and we sometimes have to seek him because he seems to be missing. But it shows in the end an intense personal love that we should have for God. Draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. For love is strong as death, jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. So that's where we're going to leave this. One of my favorite prayers has become, I am my beloved's and his desire is to me. That's a bride's prayer, but it's also a prayer of every Christian soul who recognizes that our ordinary lives, like water, have been turned extraordinary, like wine, by Jesus Christ's extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story. Visit us at excorde.org.